Greetings, you dirty customers. Welcome to the Blind Buy Podcast. I'm going to start this week's podcast by reading out a poem that has been very kindly donated by Hollywood actor Jeremy Renner. This poem is called Tennis. I've been kicked out of Portugal for fondling the pauper's baubles, dragged from the gallows for a terabyte of bent-over Philadelphia internet butt. I've audited my galoshes for the shin accountants, lay bare my heart for the Paisley bailiff. That was Tennis by Hollywood actor Jeremy Renner. Thank you, Jeremy. I liked you in... Um, the Heart Locker. Yeah, that film that won all the Oscars. Because of the war in Afghanistan and not because the film was good. You can't. So we're on episode 27, are we? I want to say 27. Pretty sure it's episode 27. That's 27 weeks of podcast hugs. For ye bastards. And it's been a very a very gentle 27 weeks. Oh, I enjoyed it. Wait, I'm, t- I'm talking like the podcast is going to end. The podcast is not going to end. It's going to continue indefinitely. I've, I've no intentions of stopping the podcast. I can't wait to see it flourish. And it's coming up to summer now. So it's going to start growing flowers. That's what I want. A flowery, summery podcast. If this is your first week joining the Blind Boy podcast, please go back to the very start. Okay? Because I don't want to have to pepper this podcast with too much exposition. Do you know? Just go back to the start. Get familiar with it. Get to learn its fears, its intentions. You need to watch this podcast to put its socks on in the morning. You can't do that by starting on podcast number 27, please. God bless. Um, I was reading about a very bizarre breed of pig. It's called a Danish protest pig. And it's an incredibly rare breed. Of domestic pig. And it's it's the only animal I can think of. That has specifically been bred. Oh there's cons texting me. Cons are texting me again in the middle of my podcast. And I don't have my fucking Gore-Tex combat trousers from last week. And, or, and then as soon as I go to the fucking phone. The chair starts squeaking. Fucking faulty towers around here this week lads. Hold on a second. Okay. I'll find some soft material in a minute to put the phone on so it doesn't... Because cunts keep going to keep texting me. Non-stop. So anyway, the Danish protest pig. It's the only animal I can think of. That I'm aware of anyway. That is specifically bred by humans. As an act of cuntishness. Do you know? 
it's it's this really rare pig that the Danish have bred. And it was at the beginning of the 20th century, right? Denmark was ruled by the Prussians. Prussians aren't around anymore. I'm not sure what they were. I think they were somewhere around Russia. So, uh, did Prussia have something to do with World War One? Doesn't exist anymore, anyway. Um, the only thing I know about Prussia is there, there's a paint, there's there's a type of color called Prussian blue, which is a, v- a very interesting blue, almost turquoise. But uh, yeah, the Danish protest pig. In the early twentieth century, Prussia was uh, ruling Denmark, and it was illegal to. Uh, fucking display the Danish flag under punishment of death and the Danes were pretty pissed off because the Danes are a proud nation they're fucking Vikings man they invented colonialism so they're no, there's no way the Danes are having some you know shower of Prussian cunts saying don't be uh, fucking displaying your fa- flag but the Danes are also you know th- those Nordic lads they love their ingenuity and their design. Isn't Ikea Danish, is it? I think so. So the Danish protest pig. It's a specific type of pig. That was bred. To look like the flag of Denmark. So that's what they did. They bro- they bred this fucking. This this fucking pig. It's. it's, it's, it's the back, they are saying that the pig is red. Then the middle around the shoulders. Is, is white. And then the head is red again, so it looks like the Danish flag. So they bred a pig as a fuck you to the Prussians. Fair play to them. I can't think of any any other animal that's been bred out of pure spite. I can tell you about a dog that was not bred for spite, but bred for the spit. That's one of my favourite dogs. And they're now extinct. And it's it's a dog breed called a turnspit dog. And they went extinct about 300 years ago, right? Very interesting little characters. So they had a few different names. They were called turnspit dog. Uh, the Vernapitor Cur, which is a pretty cool name. Um... The kitchen dog, the cooking dog, the underdog. Those were all the names for the turnspit dog. But it was like, um, no photographs exist, obviously, because the last kind of mention of these dogs is in, in the the 1800s. But they were kind of like little terriers. And what these dogs were bred for is in kitchens when the cook would have meat on a spit if, if you can imagine like a medieval kitchen so there's this huge fire okay so over the fire is a, is a, a giant of lamb or whatever and it's over the fire and obviously you need to if you're cooking a, a giant of lamb over a fire it takes hours and hours and it continually needs to be turning and turning so it doesn't burn so imagine the medieval kitchen huge big open hearth and then up on the fucking wall was like this big wooden hamster wheel right and the turnspit dog is this dog that was bred to run around 
in this wheel up on the wall and the dogs running in the wheel would, would move and rotate the leg of lamb or whatever that was over the fire and that's what these dogs were, were bred for and the most breeds of, of like terriers nowadays that have extreme loyalty the loyalty comes from this turnspit dog because they were not only bred to be hard workers and to, to you know to work on a wheel all day long but they were bred to have the loyalty to be able to be around a leg of lamb all day long and not go near it the other thing with turnspit dogs is they were bred to cooperate they often worked in teams a kitchen would have two of these dogs and the phrase every dog has its day as far as I know goes back to the turnspit dog and like when one dog was up on the the spit or, or up on the wheel doing his thing when he got tired he'd come down and then the other dog would be lying down and he'd start barking into his ear roaring at him get up onto the fucking wheel you prick you know and the two dogs would just work hand in paw turning the meat all day long and as well they were also bred to be foot warmers in church the poor bastards imagine that being bred like not even for for anyone to rub you but it's like all week long climb up there onto the wall and go around in that giant wheel to turn the meat that you can never eat and then on Sundays lie on on people's feet to keep them warm and there's a story in a place over in England called Bath and the story I think stories from like the 1600s but the Bishop of Gloucester was given a sermon you know in church and it was winter so all the pews all the people had turnspit dogs on their feet keeping them warm so the bishop bishop of uh, Gloucester starts reading out a, a passage and he says it was then that Ezekiel saw the wheel and the second the bishop said the word wheel all the fucking turnspit dogs jumped up and went mad and started legging it towards the door and caused chaos because as soon as they heard the word wheel, they thought they'd go to fucking work. The poor bastards. Um, what they they they, they eventually they went extinct because of the industrial revolution, when automation and steam power became a thing. You didn't need a dog to turn a wheel for fucking meat to rotate. You could just do it with a a piston, a steam powered piston. So that's quite sad. Queen Victoria, the total and absolute bitch, um, in fairness to her, kept uh, retired turnspit dogs as pets. And no one's really sure what they kind of turned into. Like I said, extreme loyalty in dogs can be traced back to the turnspit dog, but some people think that they, not evolved, but were bred into corgis, and corgis are the closest thing now. Because um, they had very short legs. They would very short legs. But it's interesting fucking dog breeds, you know. I mean, I've said before on a previous podcast that, you know, dogs aren't real. And they're not. There's no such animal as a fucking dog. There's wolves. But dogs are, are a human creation. 
you know. I hear people talking about global warming. Something like 50% of the world's problems with global warming comes not from industry, but from the agricultural industry and the farts of cows. Cows produce so much methane that it's making shit at the... Um, it's making... Not the ozone layer. It's it, cow, the, the methane from cows' farts causes... A, it's not even fucking... What is it? CO2? Jesus Christ. I've gone down a scientific rabbit hole now that I can't get myself out of. Cows' farts make the fucking world warmer anyway, and it's a problem. And some people say, how can that be the case? Sure, cows are animals. If cows are animals, then it must be natural. But it's like, cows aren't fucking real either. There's no such thing as a cow. Cows aren't real animals. They don't exist in nature. Cows are human creations. There was wild cattle, and the most docile, obedient ones were bred into what we call cows. And who produced loads of milk and did fuck all other than do cow things and all the aggression was bred out of them, you know? Bulldogs. There's an interesting story of breeding. Um, Bulldogs, how they came about. I'm not sure how old bulldogs are, but I'm guessing a couple of hundred years old. But anyway, how bulldogs were bred is if a farmer was in a field... And he had a bull in the field. And that bull was randy and aggressive and liable to kill the farmer. The farmer bred a dog that had the courage and tenacity to attack the bull. And the purpose of the bulldog was that when when the bull went nuts, the bulldog would put himself or herself in front of the farmer, latch onto the bull's nose. And the dog was bred to have like a set of jaws that were strong enough so that no matter how hard the bull shaked, the dog would never come off the nose. So the bull would be so kind of pissed off that they've got a dog latched onto their nose that they'll forget about the farmer and the farmer can hop over the wall and escape. But what happened with the earliest bulldogs that they were breeding? When a bulldog would latch onto a bull's nose for too long, blood would start teeming out of the fucking nostrils and snout of the bull. And there'd be so much bull or blood that it would uh, go into the nose and the mouth of the bulldog that was latched on. And it would slowly go into the into the mouth, back to the throat and then into the lungs. And the bulldogs would drown in the blood of the bull. So... The ones that survived and the ones that were the best at bulldogging, they started to, I don't like saying the word evolve because it's forced, but these are the ones that were born with kind of wrinkles in their faces. So the reason bulldogs and pit bull terriers and all those breeds, mastiffs, fucking boxers, the reason wrinkles are on their face is because their ancestors from a few hundred years ago, the wrinkles on the face meant that blood would would drain into the little furrows and not not fucking uh, drown the dog. So this is why you have to go back to episode fucking one of this podcast. Because the people who've been listening all along are perfectly comfortable with this being the start of the fucking podcast. 
another extinct breed of dog and it's going to come as a surprise the Irish Wolfhound um, Irish Wolfhound is one of the one of the oldest breeds of dogs going it, it, some people say it's around maybe 7,000 years old of a breed and the ancient Irish the first kind of settlers in Ireland had Irish Wolfhounds now they're fucking massive but five feet tall and they were used for wolf hunting because Ireland was full of wolves. Wolves and Irish elk. Massive animals. And wolves in particular were a threat to human settlements. So wolfhounds, a pack of them would go out hunting wolves with humans and killing the wolves and getting rid of them. Part of the reason why there's no actual wolves left in Ireland anymore. But... Like, one of the, one of the Irish heroes in... in our mythology is called Coo Cullen. And the, the story of Coo Cullen's childhood is that he... I can't remember the fucking names. Was it Finagus? So anyway, Coo Cullen, his name... When he was a kid, his name was Satanta. And, oh yeah, he called over to a lad called Cullen to his house, wanting to train with him or something. And there was a wolfhound guarding the house. And the wolfhound a- attacked Satanta. When he was a little kid, a little child. So Satanta took out a hurley and a slither. And he lashed the slither down the fucking the wolfhound's neck and choked it and killed it. And then Satanta, feeling bad about killing this guard dog, offered himself to be the guard dog of Cullen. And so Satanta became Coo Cullen. Coo meaning hound and Cullen, hound of Cullen. So that's in, you know, in ancient Ireland you can see how important and how ferocious the wolfhound was because our greatest mythological hero, his ferocity, is can only be communicated by comparing him to a wolfhound. So there were these massive fucking dogs. And they were being the Irish exported them. You know? In Julius Caesar mentions wolfhounds in Rome the wolfhounds were being sent over to Rome to fight bears and lions and they were considered in ferocity you know to be as scary as lions at the time massive bastards they were also used not just to but by the by the ancient Irish to take out wolves but they were used as war dogs in a war a wolfhound was trained to drag a man off a horse or drag a man off a chariot. Scary bastards. So when the Brits came over, and it started with King John, because he loved fucking uh, wolfhounds, he even had one, the Brits decided that the wolfhound was too dangerous for the regular paddy to have, because you could fight a British regiment if you had enough wolfhounds. So wolfhounds became a thing that only the English nobility were allowed to have in Ireland. So the English nobility started to breed them, export them, to the point that the wolfhound numbers were actually disappearing massively in Ireland by the 14th, 15th century. So then, Oliver Cromwell, roaring prick of a man, absolute bastard, but in fairness to Oliver Cromwell, he stepped in to stop 
the extinction of the wolfhound, the Irish wolfhound, and he created a ban on exporting them to other countries. But it didn't really work, and the Irish wolfhound, the proper ancient Irish wolfhound that's 7,000 years old, went completely extinct. And the Irish wolfhounds that we see today, they're not real Irish wolfhounds. They're they're bred from the 19th century based on the memory of what the Irish wolfhound was. Um, it's a mix of a few different dogs. Great Dane, Scottish Deerhound, English Mastiff. And, and this his name was Captain George Augustus Graham. And he went out of his way to try and breed what we now call the Irish Wolfhound, which is this big, hairy, five-foot dog. But the Irish Wolfhounds we have now, we don't really know if, if they're in any way similar to the proper ancient Irish Wolfhound. If you will, they're a hyper-real simulacra. They're a breed that's created on rumour and memory. They're a copy of a copy, you know? So we don't know. So it's fair to say that the true Irish wolfhound is actually extinct. So last week's podcast, as you remember, <clears throat> it was about uh, Conor McGregor sending me a mail after he threw that thing through the bus. I compared him to Tupac. He took exceptions to this. He sent me a mail explaining that he took exception to it. I apologised. Everything was grand. And I don't know if he listened to the podcast. Someone reasonably close to him got on to me and said that they believe he did listen to the podcast. But I don't know. Connor didn't get back to me. But he appears to have had, um, judging by his social media, a kind of a calm week. Um, he tweeted... I can't I'm paraphrasing now but he tweeted something along the lines of uh, he kind of acknowledged having made a mistake and the other stuff on his social media was just him with his family which which is a positive thing that to me suggests that he is interested in getting away from bullshit because a great way to get away from bullshit is surround yourself with people who love you unconditionally regardless of whatever it is you do and family are a great one for that but anyway, I did request last week when I was telling the story about McGregor mailing me. I said, like, journalist listening, please do not report this in a clickbait fashion. Because it'll draw a lot of shit on top of me. And did they listen? No, not really. There was a tremendous amount of ridiculous clickbait. And what I meant by clickbait was... Obviously, I understand. I can't tell a story like that publicly on a podcast and not expect it to be reported. It's out there. You're fully entitled to report to report it. That's your job. I just wanted accurate reporting. What I didn't want was stupid, big, ridiculous headlines that suggest I'm engaged in a fucking feud with uh, Conor McGregor, which is, which is, is untrue. Because I don't want his fanboys uh, atting me on Twitter and being goals. So a number of publications went for the clickbait route. The one publication that didn't go for the clickbait route and actually reported it accurately was Joe.ie. And even when Joe.ie put it out, 
they got cold feet like two hours later contacted me directly and offered to delete it and I said no it's grand you actually reported it accurately so fair play to Joe but uh, other fucking publications didn't they went straight for the uh, McGregor furious at blind boy blind boy scared that type of shit and the fanboys the fanboys came on top of me they came on top of me and uh, made my life a bit difficult well not really they just annoyed me for a bit I tell you who went for a clickbait and it's so absurd I'm, I'm happy it happened this, I think it was was it the sun I think it's the sun the sun had a, had a full page spread and someone sent me a photograph of it I'd love to actually have the fucking the physical copy so I could frame it because it's so ridiculous the sun went with this giant tabloid fucking thing and it, 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 it's me with a megaphone a photoshopped image of topless Conor McGregor behind me and then at the bottom is like a photograph of Tupac and then on the bottom right even smaller is this smiley or small little picture of 50 cent with like a little a little brief as to who 50 cent is fucking absurd tabloid journalist photoshop and it's so ridiculous I hope the person who made it was actually having a laugh I like to think that sometimes like the shit the tabloids print I like to think that sometimes the either the journalists or the graphic designers are self-aware at the utter horrible absurdity that they are making on a daily basis. I like to think they're aware of it. I'd love to think that. Actually, yeah, once, after fucking horse outside, we went into, it was the sun or the star or something, and they wanted a photo shoot with us. And we weren't into it, but we were being kind of made to do it. So we said, we'll only do a photo shoot if... The photo shoot is us eating bowls of American dollars. And they were like, yeah, we don't give a fuck. We'll put that in the front page. So they did. It's just us eating a lot of money. But, um, yeah, some of the fanboy criticism I got, which pissed me off. Not even fanboy criticism. Some, some of the lads who follow myself <coughs> had problems with last week's podcast. One person said uh, that I was weak. I was weak to have apologised to McGregor. And I was weak to have um, apologised and explained myself. It's like, what the fuck do you want? What's weak about that? Do you know what I mean? I don't understand that shit. Weakness. Often the easiest thing to do, right? No. Not even often. From an emotional perspective, the easiest thing to do when someone takes exception with your behaviour or when someone missing Like McGregor misinterpreted what I said. The easiest thing to do is to react with anger and tell the person to fuck off. The hard thing to do is to take ownership of your own behaviour, not see it as winning or losing, and have empathy for the other person. So that's how I see it. Um, I've worked very hard over the years to not be reactionary around things. I I would perceive that in myself. That for me would be weak. You know, if someone says something to me and I all of a sudden turn around and get re- and get angry and lose control of my emotions, that shit only leads to negative stuff. So 
I work on a daily basis and, and the strength, having the strength for forgiveness, compassion and empathy. And it is fucking tough too because I'm a lad and I've been bred, not bred, but I've been raised to confront. I've been, I've been raised to be aggressive and to confront people and to be stubborn. And it took me a lot of work to be compassionate and be nice and to feel that it's okay to apologize and the act of apologizing to somebody to not frame that within something like winning or losing it's bullshit happiness is winning avoiding conflict is winning do you know what I'm saying, do you know what I'm saying? having a peaceful life is winning who the fuck wants conflict nonsense um, and then what did some other person say that I wanted to correct yeah one one fella didn't he, he felt that I belittled myself um, because I called myself a nobody and that tweet seemed to be concerned but again it's like I don't agree with that either when I said last week that, you know, why the fuck is Conor McGregor mailing me and nobody? The reason I say that is that it is objectively true, right? You, you, It's an observant fact that in the world of celebrity and the level of fame that Conor McGregor has, I am a nobody. That is objectively true. And... I don't consider that to be belittling myself when I say it. And I tell you the reason why. It's of benefit to my mental health. For me to have a, a realistic appraisal. Of. We'll say my level of success. Uh, my level of. My level of success as it's perceived on the outside is what I mean. My level of fame. Things like that. If I have a realistic appraisal of these things and I'm honest with myself about it and I'm honest with others and I have a sense of humility around it, right? And I'm comfortable saying, I'm not that famous. It means that my personal identity, right? My sense of self, how I value who I am as a human is not tied up with my level of fame or my level of success or my wealth or anything like that. Because, like I've mentioned many times, a huge part of my mental health journey is to have intrinsic value. No aspect of my behaviour, no failure of my behaviour or no success of my behaviour can define my value as a human being. And I actively try and foster this attitude in myself through humility. You know, tr being realistic about things. Do you know? I don't see anything wrong with that. It's some people could see it as self-deprecating, but I don't see it as self-deprecating when it's when it's um when it's actually accurate. You know. I've said it before. People ask me about my career. My career trajectory for the past eighteen years or however long I've been doing it, the trajectory has been. Asher, you know yourself, tipping away. Do you know what I mean? And I'm alright with that, because I'm happy. Success for me is, um, it has much more to do with whether I'm doing what I want to do. Do you know? 
I uh, happiness is my thing. If if I'm writing a story that I like or writing a song that I like or whatever, as long as it's ticking my boxes, then brilliant. I'm happy. If it performs excellently and people like it, that's a wonderful bonus and obviously that brings happiness to me. And if it fails, that would bring me a bit of disappointment. But I'm never, I would never, it wouldn't affect my happiness and it wouldn't affect um, my view of myself or how I value myself as a person. So that's why I say things like that and I don't consider it to be belittling myself at all. It's, it's just my part of my mental health journey because thank you for the concern and some are wondering now no, why even bother responding well the reason is is part of this podcast is through me explaining my own uh, processes of how I manage my mental health I know from feedback that ye listen and ye apply that to your own lives and then it benefits ye as a, a kind of a, a shared experience you know She's one of the worst things you can do in life for your mental health is to attach your personal value in an aspect of your behaviour. I remember watching an interview once with a fella called Paddy McAloon. He's the lead singer-songwriter of an amazing fucking band called Prefab Sprout. And they were they were huge in the 80s, you know. Um, he's an unbelievable songwriter. But I watched this interview with Paddy McAloon. And when Prefab Sprout came out at the start, they were getting global number ones. But then they became less popular as their career went on. And Paddy McAloon in this interview was speaking about the intense pain and anger he felt when one of his records didn't go to number one. And it's stabbed me in my heart when I watched it because I first obviously I could relate to it because I'm a you know I'm a fucking songwriter I know what it's like to put things out there and to have them either perform well or not perform well and in the early stages of my career if something I put out didn't do well and I didn't have awareness around it yes it would actually hurt and it's fucking that is a living hell because that meant that my identity and worth and value as a person was being placed on how many YouTube hits I'm getting. Or in Paddy McAloon's case, where his song is in the charts. That is not a good way to live your life at all because it's shit that's outside of your control. And you can apply that to your physical appearance. If your sense of self is tied up with your physical appearance and... You know, whether people think you're good looking or fashionable or whatever. If you end up feeling genuinely bad or hurt or this trails into depression or sadness because of an external factor of yourself. It's a never ending recipe for unease. And it's a tough skill to develop, you know, and it takes a long time. And you fall off the wagon. But that's part of the process, you know. I say this today. That, like, I try and have intrinsic value. And not allow external things define my value as a human. I have to work at it all the time. Because I might I might fall off the fucking... Fall off the wagon, you know. And 
And I'll tell you what does it. I'll tell you what causes it, me to fall off the wagon. Of this particular mindset. Positive praise. If I do something that's good. And I get a lot of positive praise from other people around it. I have to be very careful. That I don't bask in that praise. Or that I don't allow that praise to make me feel too good as a human about it. Because that's what sets you up for the crashing depression when you get negative feedback so the trick is keep on a level the whole time intrinsic value if I something that I create a creative work that I create I should place no more value on this than I do a fry up that I make in the morning you know or a nice dinner that's the way I look at it and that not only protects my mental health it protects me as a fucking artist I'm writing my second book at the moment and one of the toughest aspects of writing this second book is trying to forget any positive praise I received for the first book because it colours my vision it means that I'm trying to write what I think other people want instead of following my heart which is what I did with the first book so it's a challenge but you can apply that, apply that to anything. A couple of podcasts back I spoke about Carl Rogers' real and ideal self. There is the person that you actually are. And there is the person that you would like other people to think you are. If you live too much of your life being the person that you would like other people to think you are. It's a never ending cycle of... Anxiety and depression, anxiety and and sadness, because it's unattainable. But you can always strive to be the best version of you, and no one can take that away. You can always be the best version of you, and no one can do it better than you. Nobody can do it worse than you. It's just you. And I try and apply that as much as possible to to myself as much as I can. Someone did say something nice last week regarding the McGregor thing. One person tweeted and said, because you mentioned McGregor and it got into the papers, a lot of the type of lad who wouldn't be listening to your podcast is will now actually listen to it and may actually take away some um, some good messages from it that they wouldn't otherwise hear. So I hope that's the case. That'd be class. So enough of that. This 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 podcast, uh, when I sat down to it, was supposed to be about it's a dog tragedy podcast. I wanted some dog tragedy, you know, extinct breeds, breeds that were bred for human service. Sadness of the sadness of dog, tragic dog podcast. Um, there's a bridge in Scotland called the Overtone Bridge and it was built in 1895 right and it's a gorgeous bridge it's this like, kind of decorative bridge but it's very very high up but anyway dogs keep leaping to their deaths from this bridge and no one knows why 
um, it, it, it started to happen in the, in the 1950s. Somewhere between 600 and 1,000 dogs have leapt to their deaths from this bridge. And it's like to the point that some people have like think it's paranormal. They've had dog psychologists in all sorts trying to find out what the fuck is going on with this bridge. The only kind of commonality that seems to be the case is it's only dogs that have long snouts jump off this bridge. One theory is that the potent order of piss from male ferrets uh, is travelling up the wall of the bridge with the wind and the dogs get the smell of this ferret piss and say oh, I'll have a bit of that and they just leap off the bridge but no one really knows no, no one understands what the fuck is going on with it so that's the uh, that's a bit of a tragic dog story isn't it poor pricks So it's at this point of the podcast that I ask you to support me. You can do this in many different ways. I would like you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and also leave a review of the podcast, please. I love it when you do that. Um, also, this podcast is supported by you, the listener, through the Patreon page. Patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, would you like to buy me the equivalent of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month? So if you do, please go to patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast and give me a couple of quid, please. If you don't want to do it or you can't afford it, it's fine. You can listen to f- listen for free. This is an appeal to people's soundness. It's voluntary. And Thank you so much to everybody who is contributing on the Patreon. It's uh, it's provided me with a brand new fucking studio, is what it's done. That I'm gradually kind of sorting out and uh, getting better. So thank you so much. Um, What did I mean to say? Oh yeah, yeah, the question segment isn't sponsored this week. Because... The wonderful Wolfgang Digital sponsored three questions over the past three weeks. So I just want to give a special shout out to Wolfgang Digital. Say thank you so much. Uh, They're a small Irish uh, digital company. Digital marketing. Thank you so much for sponsoring the podcast for those three episodes. I really fucking appreciate it. Fair play to you. And if you want to see the videos that they made that were responses to questions that, that they asked me. Type in Wolfgang Bites into YouTube and watch them. So thanks, lads. I appreciate that. I was in Wexford at the weekend doing a live podcast, which was great crack. I interviewed a woman called Cathy Keane, and she uh, she was an expert on Vinegar Hill. So I don't know when I'll put that podcast out, but it was good crack. And thank you to... Yellow Belly Brewery, who are a, they're a, a microbrewery in uh, in Wexford, and they came along to the live podcast and brought me a few cans of their beer, and one of them was 
very, very strange in a nice way. It was a passion fruit sour beer, which it assaulted my tongue. I didn't know whether I liked it or not, but I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. So that's a good thing, you know. So it was an interesting week with uh, Trump and Syria, wasn't it? I hate that. I fucking... I, I, that really pissed off my weekend. Those um, missile strikes in Syria. Now, I don't know enough about the fucking situation. Like, I mean... Assad is some dickhead using chemical weapons like that. But at the same time as well, you just wonder, like... Of course chemical weapons are fucking terrible, but you have to wonder, what's so, what is so bad about chemical weapons? Why, why is it okay, why is it not okay for Assad to gas innocent um, civilians, but it's completely okay two weeks ago for Israel to fire live ammunition on children? Why, why is one of those things okay? Like... And Israel used white phosphorus bombs in Yemen, which is a form of chemical weapon. I just don't understand. Why aren't they all terrible? I just don't get it. But yeah, my my, my I had a, I had an anxious and sad weekend, waiting for Trump's military response on Syria because. I just don't want the US and Russia knocking heads, especially with Trump, the lunatic, who's willing to do things based on his ego. So I didn't like that. I didn't like the anxiety and tension of going to sleep and waking up in the morning and the horrible feeling in the pit of my belly as I search for my fucking iPhone to turn on the news app to see what has happened the night before and are we in World War 3 so fuck you Trump for that um, it, that really pisses me off because like I said with my with my mental health journey and keeping an eye on my happiness and my anxiety and my sadness when it comes to genuine external events like that that are miles outside of my control the feeling of anxiety that I get and the feeling of depression that I would get, those are justified responses. Those are not, that's not a mental health issue. That is, it it is perfectly normal for me to be anxious and afraid that an American missile is going to land on some Russians and then we've got a fucking war. I don't like that. Um, At the same time as well, I don't want to be freaking ye out, Okay. Here's the thing with... The reason Russia are a problem is because they have nuclear weapons, okay? So you don't want a nuclear fucking conflict because that's the world gone. However, there is a thing called mutually assured destruction. And this is an agreement that the world powers have that... It's basically their their, mil, their nuclear structure is set up so that nobody can shoot any nuclear missiles because everyone dies. So it's a real last resort thing. Um. So that does help me to sleep at night a bit. The other thing too is... We do think of Russia as this... 
because a lot of it has to do with Russia's physical size on the map, okay? Which isn't actually fully accurate as well, because the map as we see it is not geographically accurate, but on the map as we know it, Russia is the largest country in the world, so we see Russia as this fucking huge, giant power. We also think back to Russia in during the Cold War, when it was a, a superpower. But Russia's got an economy about the same size as Italy. No matter what bullshit Putin talks or how hard he seems, he cannot take on the forces of NATO in conventional warfare. Just cannot. It's it's not the nineteen fucking sixties anymore. So Russia are are they're mainly talk. Do you know what I'm saying? And this mutually assured destruction thing technically should keep us safe from worldwide global nuclear conflict. But if you get bogged down about the world ending, one thing to always remind yourself, the world ends for people every single day when they die, you know? Try and focus on the now, on the here and now. But you know, there you go, there's a big privileged rant out of me, because like, it causes me anxiety when I think the conflict will affect me. The poor bastards over in Syria, that's their life, you know? That's it, I'm a human. And we're selfish. So it's time now for the ocarina pause. This is <clears throat> where Acast, the app that I published this on, inserts a digital advert into the podcast, which you may or may not hear depending on your geographic location. So I don't have my ocarina yet. I don't know where it is. It's not lost, it's just somewhere in a bag somewhere. So last week I tapped a sherry glass to create a little, a modern digital angelus that you could hear. I don't have my sherry glass, but what I do have is a butterfly knife. And I took this out, had this since I was about 13 years of age. And I took it out of its, 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 its box because I was watching the film Falling Down with Michael Douglas and he plays with a butterfly knife in it. This week's podcast was supposed to be about a very hot take that I have about the film Falling Down and a few others from that period. But I didn't want to do it this week because it requires a little bit more research and I want to do it justice. Maybe next week. So I'm going to play with my with my butterfly knife for a few seconds. And you can listen to that if you're lucky. And if you live on mainland, the mainland UK then you're probably going to hear some capitalist bullshit. But for the good people of Ireland, just listen to uh, listen to me play with my butterfly knife for a little bit. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Oh, yeah. I feel like Michael Douglas. It's time to take some questions for the podcast because we are 50 minutes in. Hattie asks, What is your take on so many Irish living at home with their parents? How is the scarcity of good paying jobs and affordable housing changing the cultural dynamics and yes, mental health? I have a bit of a, a, a kind of a hot take on that. Um, Like, in the 19... In the 19... Not the 1950s. Teenagers, right? The concept of a teenager and what a teenager is is a very recent thing. Um, Teenagers only became a thing in the 1950s with post-World War II capitalism. Before that, you were a child, you went from short pants to long pants and you became an adult at about 15. But capitalism and... uh, more income and more expendable fucking money meant that all of a sudden now there was this new period of adolescence called a teenager where adulthood was delayed until you were 18. I think that capitalism and neoliberalism now is causing the same thing. And you'll see this in hipster culture. We call it hipster culture. Although hipsters are gone a bit out now, I don't know what to call it, but... People in their 20s are in a state of delayed childhood. If you look at our popular culture and the films that are most, that are grossing the most in the fucking cinema, they're superhero films. Shit the children should be interested in, shit from our childhood, nostalgia. If you take a film like Big with Tom Hanks, like the whole shtick with Big is that a child is placed into the body of an adult. The adult is only about... Tom Hanks, I think, is early 30s in that fucking film. And the adult behaves like a child. The film Big wouldn't make sense in 2018. In a world where our offices have got beanbags. And people... it's, it's, It's completely acceptable for someone in their early 30s to work in an office that has a ping pong table... And for them to go into a tie shop and jump around on a giant piano. That is no longer absurd. That is now normal. And I think a new a new period is, 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 is happening in humankind because of, of, of uh, capitalism. We've got teenager and now this new delayed adulthood thing where you're not, you're not really an adult now. Until you're mid-fucking-30s, you know? So that's kind of... That's my hot take on it. It's going to become completely and utterly normalised. I can't see it changing or getting better. 
because of the boom and bust nature of neoliberal economics. Rent has gone higher and it's just going to become normalised. We were the first kind of modern generation who have got it worse off than the generation that came before us, which is very odd. And it's just going to become normalised. And adulthood is delayed. And this is reflected in our culture. And is that a good or a bad thing? I don't know. Biologically it might be a bad thing because people are having... People are having children later. And then... Those children will be born... With older parents. And be confronted at a young age... Knowing that their parents are probably going to die when they're in their 20s. That mightn't be great for the mental health of future generations. It might make them more anxious. I don't know. Time will tell. Adrian asks, what's going on in the minds of those people who climb cranes and dangle off buildings? Yeah, I've often wondered about that myself. I fucking hate watching those videos. Uh, There's a lot of Russians that do that for some reason dangling off these giant fucking buildings for selfies and it makes me kind of angry it angers me that um, I don't know I've kind of that they've been given the privilege of an able body and they're taking the absolute fucking piss by uh, risking their lives you know but in Freudian psychology there's a theory called Thanatus, which is the death drive. It was first posited by a woman called S- Sabina Spilrein. And what what Thanat there's two two drives in Freudian psychoanalysis. There's Eros, which is the sex or life instinct that humans have, and Thanatus, which is the death instinct. And the death instinct is it's kind of expressed in aggressive terms and one of the conflicts that we as humans have is to kind of try and, try and find a balance between the life sex eros instinct and the death aggression uh, tenatus instinct that drive and I think the those people that dangle themselves off buildings they're people who on an unconscious level completely and utterly refuse to accept that they will one day die because that's a huge part of being human massive part of being human is to understand and know and eventually accept that you are going to die that your life is finished and these people who engage in the risky behaviours unconsciously I think they cannot accept this and their way of the defence mechanism that comes into place for them to manoeuvre this uncomfortable realisation is for them to continually test death that by consistently putting yourself in a situation where you come close to death and you get an adrenaline rush that it's, it's testing its boundaries it's trying to make and these are unconscious forces now, so the person doesn't know they're doing this. They just understand that they get a good rush. But what I think it does, it relieves the underlying unconscious hum of anxiety of not accepting 
that they are going to die. So consistently testing its boundaries as a way to feel more powerful than death. You know, that's all I can think of it. It's like, what, what, like I can't in a million fucking years understand why someone would do it. I'm, I'd never jump in front of a train or do something like that. I value my life too much. But the people who do it, I, I guess they're trying to control or coerce or bully or gain victory over this pure fucking existential thread that is in the human psyche. They're denying it. They're denying it completely. So that that's what I think that's what's going through their minds. Andy asks, do you have any hot takes on the current state of the music business? Um Yeah, we're gradually getting to a stage where musicians and I mean like even famous fucking musicians we're no longer pedestaling them as much in terms of them being rich and famous the only musicians that are rich are the like the top 1% but the rest are just getting by like Vice did an excellent article there about a year or two ago about these indie bands in the UK who'd be selling out fucking 5,000 crowd venues and then spending the weekends working in Nando's because that's the way it is now you know um, there is not a lot of money to be made in music at all Spotify plays fuck, fuck all and that's where most people are listening to it YouTube play, pays fuck all for music the only money you can make is by doing gigs but if you're in a band with five people you have to split that as well as that with gigs overheads are fucking massive so into the pocket of the artist an artist will walk away with maybe less than 10% than the actual ticket price for a live gig and that's the main income and merchandise as well is the other source of income so that's the hot take on the music business we're we're kind of drifting towards a more humble view of people that are fucking famous fame does not mean money unless you're at the very top but there's no middle ground anymore bands in the 60s and 70s that were modest modestly successful they were still millionaires not anymore no fucking way and it cripples a lot of fucking bands. I know a, a lot of Irish bands who simply had to quit because if you want to take your career seriously, you have to focus on that 100%. But how do you do that when it doesn't actually earn you any fucking money? And they did a study over in the UK where the arts is massively, massively underrepresented by working class people in the UK. Because it's only privately educated people who can afford and fund a music career in the UK. And it's part of the reason as well for the bag on my fucking head. I mean the Patreon is keeping me going at the moment and that's fantastic. But if I want to focus seriously on my art and still earn a living. Because I've got a fucking bag in my head. If I need to take a part-time job to pay the bills 
then I absolutely can, which is a brilliant thing. But if I was more recognisable, that would become difficult. Um, it's I mean, it'd be difficult for someone with, with a, a recognisable face to get a lot of jobs because it would interfere with that work, you know. So that's one thing I'm grateful for. And I have done it many a time. It's just tapping away at the work. Oh shit, only a couple of gigs coming in. That's not going to pay the fucking heating bill. Grand, I'll do something else for a while. No hassle, no worry. So that's the music industry now. And I don't know, is it a good or a bad thing? I'm not sure. As long as art keeps getting made, then great. But I fucking hate seeing someone's dreams get crushed because they can't pay their fucking heating bill. That's shit. Um, and that's why it's important for ye support things like fucking Patreon for whatever artist you're listening to that you actually enjoy. Don't be... The amount of fucking people that have said to me, oh, you were on the Late Late Show, you must be a millionaire. My fucking hole. You don't get paid for being on the Late Late. Like, other people too. Like, I would have a... Like, like a four-part series on RTE and people would assume... Jesus, you must have got to pay a million for that. I swear to fuck, I've done 1916, a one-hour documentary for RTE, and I've done a four-part series for RTE, where I'm writing it, editing it, appearing in it. Like, if I add up the amount of work that I put in to do these things that are shown on television, if I add up the fee that I got, it's, it's less than minimum wage. For the work that I put in. Now technically what I should do. Is not give a fuck about the RTE commission. And just simply show up on the day when the cameras are there. And make a piece of shit bit of television. And then the pay is somewhat justified. But I'm. I care about what I put out. So if I get a four part series off RTE. I'm putting six months of research into that. I'm putting six months of writing into it. I want to do it the best that I can possibly do. And as well, take a lesser fee so that more money goes into actually making the best piece of TV. But the downside of that is, like I said, actually getting paid less than minimum wage because I want to do something properly. That's the fucking reality today. That is that is the real deal. That's what's actually happening. And same thing can be said for music, for fucking anything, you know? Unless you're setting out Vicar Street ten nights in a row. Then you'll be talking about a profit. But last Rubber Bandits gig we did in Vicar Street. Sold out one night. Took six months to sell out. But again, ending up with about less than 10% of that ticket in my pocket. So it's, it is tough going. It is tough going. And I'm not fucking complaining. Because... I fucking love my job. I will take that over a job I don't like. I get to. I'm, I'm certainly not fucking complaining, but that's just a reality. The reason it needs to be said is because there's misconceptions, do you know. And thank fuck for Patreon, and thank you for contributing to the Patreon. I am not taking the piss when I say how much of a difference your small contribution makes. Seriously. So that's all we've got time for this week. Was that an unintentionally negative podcast? Was that slightly negative? Talking about the sadness of dogs and then uh, mutually assured destruction. 
I don't know. Do you know, you got to embrace the darkness sometimes. you got to embrace the darkness if you want to have a bit, a bit of the light as well. I'm fatigued today as well. I've started a new um, a new running regime. I, I used to run, we'd say, around 7k three times a week. And now I've upped that to 10k. So I'm, I'm running 10 kilometers three times a week. And I'm feeling it in my bones. So I'm slightly fatigued recording this podcast. Um, anyone who's interested in running, can I give you a small bit of very, very important advice? Your, your, I don't think your legs want you to run that much, so it's very, very easy to get injuries, right, very easily. And once you get an injury on, on your ankle or your knee, you're fucked, that's with you for, for ages. So if you're thinking of starting running, uh, get your gait analysed. Most good sports shops will actually do it for free. You go into the fucking sports shop, they throw you onto a treadmill and they have cameras on your feet. And all they do is they record how you walk and that will tell you the shape of your feet and whether you need shoes that have support or don't have support, right? The the correct running shoe is essential or you're going to injure yourself and do stretches as well before, after, warm down. That stuff's not bullshit. I'm very lucky to have not given myself. I've gotten the old sore, the odd sore knee or sore shins or a sore ankle, but I've been lucky enough to nip it in the bud. And I've identified my. I have an overpronated gait, which means that I need insoles that have a very high arch to support my legs. And as soon as I do that, I can run 10k three, four times a week. Not a bother. No hassle. Um, no pain that's outside the ordinary I do re- and I've said it before I recommend a bit of running running is fucking class it's horrible for the first three months but once you get into it it is like uh, meditation it's great for the mental health and I'm not suggesting running as a mental health solution that's a facetious suggestion that some people make it is one small facet in a holistic mental health regime so I'll leave you this week I'm going to come back with something more positive next week I've had an unintentionally negative podcast and I hope you still got your podcast hug yeah we had a cry hug what's wrong with a cry hug every so often alright so look after yourself go in peace have a wonderful lovely week embrace the fucking there's, there's some nice flowers out there at the moment the flowers are coming up daffodils dandelions all that carry on leaves on trees you remember back the podcast around november when it was bleak when the weather was bleak and i was i was telling you how i if if the if the environment is bleak around me i search for the beauty in that bleakness and it does exist especially if you're a maggot or a worm but now it's time the the, the nature is reflecting human happiness days are longer the air smells better all this crack and carry on so if there's one thing I'd like you to take from this podcast if you've made it this far 70 minutes in live the rest of the week in the here and now and don't miss the start of spring don't miss it smell what needs to be smelt feel the temperature notice the fucking the gorgeous colour of the fucking evening sky the pink 
draping across the clouds. Do you know what I'm saying? The early mornings. Looking forward to May and June with those crisp fucking summer mornings and the dew hanging around the place like it's smoking fags. Enjoy that. Take it on board. Engage it with every one of your senses. Your taste. Taste the air. Smell it. Feel the grass. Touch your feet onto the ground. All of this stuff is sustenance for the spirit. You shout a cunts. All right. Have a good one. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.